Hello, and welcome back. In case you're just joining us, The Sacred Ascent is a four-part series centered around understanding land management decisions between climate groups and indigenous peoples. This podcast investigates the tensions between the two groups, how decisions are made, and what results have stemmed from conversations over decades that have taken place to figure out how climbing should be dealt with. Welcome to our third episode, Climbing at Spring Mountain. You're listening to The Sacred Ascent. Similar to last week's episode where we discussed Wallula Gap and the Twin Sisters, we'll follow a similar plan for today. I'll explain who all of the key figures are in this issue, the history, and ultimately the status of climbing in this area. In contrast to last week's episode, Spring Mountain signifies an arrangement of compromises from both climbers and the Native American tribes. This was all mediated through the Forest Service. It's also important to remember that in all three of these case studies, they all demonstrate different ways that climbing is and can be handled by land management agencies. Alright, so the stakeholders with Spring Mountain are not as complex as the ones for Wallula Gap. Here's really all you need to know as we head into the history. As I mentioned before, the CTUIR, Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation, is also involved with this case study as well. There's also a local climbing group from Legrand, as well as some climbers from the Walla Walla area that are involved. The key representative of those climbers is Kevin Pogue. He's a geology professor at Whitman College and a really well-known route developer. He was actually highly involved with all three case study areas that we look at. Last, the Forest Service, and specifically the Umatilla National Forest Service, manage the Spring Mountain area. There you go. Let's take a look at the geology, and then we'll head into the history of the area and really get into the issue. For so many miles around, the only other rock is basalt. Spring Mountain, though, is andesite, which is a volcanic rock that's thicker and stronger than basalt. Andesite doesn't flow as far, and thus the accumulations are a lot thicker than basalt. Andesite is also more resistant, it has less fractures, and it has higher cliff bins. There are three old volcanoes in the area, and Spring Mountain is one of them. The reason why the cliffs are exposed in this area and not at the other volcano sites is because there was a catastrophic landslide. The cliffs are the headwall of the landslide. There's continuous rockfall occurring on the face to this day, and the exposure is rare, thus the rock is the best suited place for climbing in the area. The face and cliff band of Spring Mountain is only about a quarter mile long, so relatively short, but because of that there's a really high concentration of routes. Last, let's talk about how to get there. Unlike the Twin Sisters, which are actually right off of a major highway, Spring Mountain is located about 15 miles away from Grand. You have to take a series of forest service roads until you reach a parking lot. That's actually a logging truck turnaround. From there, you hike in about 10 to 15 minutes before reaching the cliff band. It truly cannot be seen from the parking lot, and no one really stumbles up onto it. Okay. So, we've talked about the geology, and we've talked about who the important stakeholders are, but we haven't talked about what the issue is. Let's figure that out now. Let's start with the Native American side. The Cayuse and the Nez Perce 
deem this cliff band sacred because of the availability of medicinal plants and because it was used as a site for vision quests and for spiritual gatherings. Okay, now to the climbing aspect. Climbing began in this area in the late 1970s, and in the early 1980s, climbers from La Grande, Oregon began placing fixed anchors for sport climbing on the rock face. For those that aren't as familiar with this terminology, fixed anchors are any type of artificial gear that, once placed, is left permanently or fixed to the rock. To attach the rope, climbers clip their rope through the chains or the bolts at the top. Sport climbing refers to when climbers are attached to a rope and clip into bolts, which are those permanent fixtures on the rock face. Clipping helps arrest a fall. Climbers from Walla Walla began coming to this area in the early 90s, and between 1995 and 2000, there was massive route development. In 2001, a few members from the CTUIR discovered climbing at Spring Mountain. They contacted the Umatilla National Forest Service demanding an investigation and the halt of all climbing. In an attempt to mediate the conflict, the director of the Umatilla National Forest Service held a meeting for all of the climbers and the members from the tribes to come together and reach an agreement on how the space would continue to be managed. During the meeting, both sides expressed their concerns about climbing. I'm going to walk through each side's argument. Armin Minthorn, CTUIR councilman and spiritual leader, explained, and I'm quoting from direct meeting minutes and notes. He said, Elders say that Spring Mountain needs to be taken care of because the mountain has taken care of them. He pointed out that one of his major issues with the climbing there was the visual disruption it had on the rock face. The shiny bolts and hanging anchors disrupted the scene. Secondly, he pointed out that this area was highly sacred for vision quests and for collecting medicinal plants. I know I mentioned that earlier, but I thought it would be worthwhile to mention it again. It also helps explain why his last and primary issue with climbing at Spring Mountain was the loss of vegetation, primarily at the bottom of the crag and on the trails. These were the elements that were brought up during the series of meetings that took place between February and April of 2001. Kevin Pogue and a few others came to speak on behalf of the climbers. They pointed out the following in their defense of the continuation of climbing in the area. First, there are only a few places like Spring Mountain that are not a four to six hour drive away. Again, I'll quote from the meeting minutes. It's not one of many local places where we climb, but instead it's the only place a lot of us can climb. The other aspect is that it's great for all levels of climbing and there's a route for everyone. However, because it's not nearby a large city, it's not a crowded area, which will most likely continue to be the case for a long time. Last, the andesite rock is different and really unique to climb on. It's also one of the few summer climbing areas available. He states that climbers have been really respectful of the land. They stay on their very narrow trails and there's rarely any type of trash. Climbers are good stewards of the land, he insists. So we know the two perspectives now, but how did these meetings conclude? What came of this? After almost six months of meetings, they reached a final consensus of compromises. Climbing could continue in the area, but no new routes could be established. Next, money would need to be found to pay for camouflaged anchors and bolts to replace the current bright, shiny silver metal ones. 
All top anchors were to be moved to new positions where they could not be seen by someone standing five feet from the edge of the cliff. And finally, the Forest Service would pay to have a new sign installed about the history and the cultural significance of the area. A few years later, the tribes hired someone to walk the length of Spring Mountain, approximately a quarter of a mile long, but with 133 climbs in total, to assure that the stipulations of no new routes had been followed. It had. The total cost to purchase all of the new hardware was $2,014.10. It's unclear if grant money helped foot this bill or if the tribes absorbed this cost. As I've mentioned, the goal of this podcast is to explore how land is mediated between two groups. The Spring Mountain case study, in my honest opinion, does an excellent job of arbitrating between climbers and the CTUIR, all through the Forest Service. These compromises allowed for climbing to continue while also preserving the visual and cultural significance of the area to the CTUIR. In our next and final episode, We'll look at our third case study, one that highlights the differences in how three land management agencies decided to handle climbing around Castle Rocks in South Central Idaho. Stay with us. All of the music in this episode was provided from Free Music Archives. Also, a thank you to Kevin Pogue for providing all of the resources to make this episode possible and really for your wisdom on this entire project. Thanks for listening to The Sacred Ascent, and we'll see you soon.